Thank you, Amy. Address ye merry gentlemen. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. We're going to write along with Alex's prayer today and with our scripture. And so I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And for the little ones, if you'd like to have them downstairs for an age-graded children's church, you can be dismissed at this time. Many of our folks are already traveling. Many of you travel plans. And so we lift you up in prayer as you uh, head out. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So last week we had to cancel after we got our first, just our first look at uh, 2 Corinthians 4. It wasn't bad for Lynchburg. That was pretty good snow. Not too bad. How many liked that? How many enjoyed that? You enjoyed that snow, right? And how many are all done with snow now? You're good for the rest of the winter. Yeah, I figured that'd be the same amount of hands. Uh, anyway, that was great. Anyway, God's plan for a healthy church. We're back together in our study. I'm excited to be here and doing this with you and being in the Word together. We, I pray this is not your first time in the Word this week. If it is, you're starving this morning. And uh, that's not how the Lord intended for you to intake His Word. So take some time as you come around to this beginning of this new year and make a commitment to be in the Word every day. You can find out in the foyer, you can find a Bible reading calendar where you can read through the Bible in a year. Use your tablet or your phone and go to YouVersion. They've got a ton of different types of reading plans where you can uh, be through the Word completely in one year. That richness of that will be yours, not only that, but the wisdom that the Lord has planned for you to gain from His Word, your understanding of His nature uh, throughout all the ages and how He never changes and how He wants to work in your life as well. And also it holds the holy standard up before us if you're struggling in things with your things in your life. Uh, as all of us are, you will find that the scriptures there on a daily intake help you uh, to begin to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So let me encourage you to be in the Word each day so that when you come here, uh, this is just a continuation corporately of what you've been doing individually all week. God's plan for a healthy church, keys to lasting ministry and fulfilled life, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And really all the way through the chapter. And we began this new section last time. And as we introduced this section, we begin to see really the steadfastness that Paul brought to his ministry. He is again, as we've talked about in the past, in this letter reveals his heart to the people and we see it over and over again we see it so clearly here uh, as he communicates how in the middle of all types of difficulty he's been able to have lasting ministry and in the middle of whatever hardship whatever discouragement he had to deal with he could say we do not lose heart and i think that is a worthy that is a worthy pursuit as we dig into this passage to understand some of the keys to lasting ministry and a fulfilled life they are the anchor points or the GPS points, if you will, waypoints that we can establish that help keep us on course. And so I want to read with you, just picking up in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 10 today, and then allow the Holy Spirit to go to work as we take a look at these, uh, at these passages. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. Verse 2, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, verse 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6, For God who said, 
light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing. Verse 9. Persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Verse 10. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. And in just that little short section, you can see some very important keys as Paul continues to say, hey, you know, there's difficulty, but we're not despairing. We're, we're crushed, we're, we're, but we're not forsaken. We're not destroyed. We do not lose heart, he says, several times in the passage. And so I think if we think about life ministry, if we think about lasting ministry, we think about keys to a fulfilled life uh, and the difficulties that are around us, I think we can see how important this passage will be to us. Now, that he could say, we do not lose heart, of course, doesn't mean that he somehow sets himself apart from the hardship, like he doesn't have to deal with it. And I think that that's important to point out as we started last week uh, talking about the difficulty uh, and being able to say we don't lose heart. I think it's important to remember Paul's not set in some separate category from us that he didn't have to deal with the difficult things, like maybe he just ignores it or doesn't, it doesn't affect him, unlike the rest of us. Um, it doesn't appear to be the case at all. And as we look at the keys to lasting ministry of fulfilled life, we don't want to infer from Paul that there's no battle, because there is. Uh, I remember reading Charles Spurgeon's lectures to my students. He, he devoted a whole chapter called The Minister's Fainting Fits. And it had to do with ministerial discouragement. He said, quote, Knowing by most painful experience what deep depression of spirit means, being visited therewith at seasons by no means few or far between, I thought it might be consolatory to some of you, of my brethren, if I gave my thoughts thereon, that young men might not fancy that some strange thing had happened to them when they became, for a season, possessed by melancholy. Spurgeon goes on to list several reasons for discouragement and uh, in ministry, including we are mere humans and as such compassed with infirmity and errors of sorrow. He says most of us are in some way or another physically unsound. He says our work, when earnestly undertaken, lays open to attack in the direction of depression. Who can bear the weight of souls, he said, without sometimes sinking into the dust? He, he says our position in the church gives us a sense of loneliness and isolation. And his his audience really is uh, ministers who are training, but it has, I think, a broader application uh, as you minister in that, in that place where the Lord has placed you. And so this great preacher went on to warn that discouragement can hit us in the hour of our perceived greatest success, he says, or before any great undertaking, or, he says, in the midst of unbroken labor, or when suddenly hit by one crushing stroke. What should we do, Spurgeon says, quote, be not dismayed by soul trouble, count it no strange thing, but a part of ordinary ministry experience, and in that light cast the burden of the present along with the sins of the past and the fear of the future upon the Lord who forsaketh not his saints. Live by the day, a by the hour, put no trust in frames and feelings, and continue with double earnestness to serve the Lord when no visible result is before you. And he ended with this, uh, to those who are preparing for pulpit ministry, he says, quote, Come fair, come foul, the pulpit is our watchtower, and ministry our warfare, be it ours, when we cannot see the face of God, to trust under the shadow of his wings, end quote. 
And you see a lot of uh, reflection, of course, in Spurgeon's comments, precisely some of the things that Paul said in the Word. That shouldn't surprise us. But back in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 5, Paul says as much to the church, and we see a couple of principles about Christian life uh, that really illustrate our passage, so let's mark them. So back in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, I just want to remind you of some of these things. Paul says, remember, he says, but just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. That has uh, much of what Spurgeon just said to his students, right? Count it no strange thing that you're having some difficulty, uh, as if something surprising has happened to you that is only happening to you. For just as the sufferings of Christ, that sufferings is the Greek noun pathamata. And here in this context, it has to do with enduring calamity or enduring evil. And the idea is reflecting upon what Christ had to suffer during his life on earth. And he says, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so are, uh, and that abundance is all believers then, uh, they're ours, and, and all believers are included in this statement. Uh, that's the idea of an overflowing or uh, abounding type of, of difficulty, parasuo, present active indicative. So uh, that's, that is the verb of reality. This is seeing that this is true for all believers, seeing that the sufferings of Christ are ours in an abounding measure. And here Paul is connecting with every believer. They're ours, his, he says, and yours, mine and his, mine and yours. Nobody's immune. This is the reality of every true believer. Nobody's immune. And so that first supporting principle, the sufferings of Christ overflow to us and are so, uh, we're made to be partakers of them with him, or if you will, uh, the sufferings of Christ that he had to suffer are part of the commonality that every believer shares. So it's not surprising to us as we do ministry uh, that we should have difficulty. It's not, it shouldn't be surprising to us as we do ministry that we should have some, some opposition. We should have some hardship or whatever may come along as the sufferings of Christ overflow onto all of his followers. So that shouldn't be surprising. So as you do ministry, as, as uh, Spurgeon had to really address this with his students, hey, you know what? You're going to have times that you're really low. You're going to be pressed into the dust. He said, how can you bear the weight of souls and not be pressed down into the dust once in a while? And Paul says, who, who, who walks in sin that I don't uh, worry about them. Remember Paul said, in the, along with all the other difficulties I had, what about my concern for all the churches? And so Paul thinks back of all the ministries that he had and all the people, individual people, and that's what you do when you're in ministry, there's people, and you think about faces and you think about circumstances and you think about what's going on in their life now. And, and uh, Paul says, listen, you know, this, this, uh, who, who, who is in difficulty when I'm not suffering as well uh, over that? And so there's this, this idea that the sufferings of Christ, that he had to suffer, that's part of the commonality that every believer shares. And Paul's prayers and his experience are the prayer and experience of every true believer uh, as he relates to that. So, so Spurgeon said, count it not strange, as if you're the only one. And in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, uh, Paul talks about that again, and he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And, and we could go on here. And, and on and on, because there's many passages just like this, but I know that you can see this and have experienced to a greater or lesser degree this very thing. We see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, here Paul strengthens the church and he says, see that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. Again, really the same thing he's been saying. Uh, it's not surprising to us that you're having difficulty, for you yourselves know that we've been destined for this. That may not be what somebody told you when they led you to Christ. Uh, hey, you're destined for difficulty and the overflows of the sufferings of Christ will be yours. It's not the way you, you know, make friends and influence people. Hey, come to faith, you're gonna suffer, okay? But you know, this is part of the reality of the gospel. If, if you're, not greater, you're not greater than the master, so the master endured difficulty, so will you. So you were destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you that in advance that 
we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. And so, speaking of a situation, of course, there that uh, uh, the Thessalonians would understand, and Paul refers to that. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Paul has been stoned to death in the city uh, by fellow Jews, and then he's dragged outside of the city of Lystra and left for dead. And so his uh, people who are or his disciples are following him. They're kind of standing around him. They're mourning him because they think he's dead. And a little while later, he gets up, kind of shakes the whole thing off. He goes back into the city and stays the night in the city where they stoned him to death. And then uh, the next day, leaves for Derby with Barnabas. And verse 22 tells us all the while, Acts 14, 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He wanted to show that difficulty is not strange to us. And so I think it's amazing that in the city where they stoned him and drug him out, he gets up and he goes back in. And not only does he go back in just to collect his stuff and he's out of there, he goes back in and he spends the night. And you can imagine the entire time he's doing it, he's encouraging the disciples. Hey, I know what just, went, just happened to me. You shouldn't count this strange. This is part, of, part and parcel of the overflow of the sufferings of Christ, the very same thing that we saw in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So our sufferings for Christ's sake arise from the same cause as his, uh, namely the opposition of darkness to light. I mean, if you are in the light and you've been placed in the kingdom of his son, it shouldn't surprise you that you have some opposition in the darkness. Uh, the ministry of the new covenant, of course, as Paul has emphasized that in 2 Corinthians, if we looked at that very clearly in, verse, in chapter 3. So the ministry of the new covenant runs afoul of the world system. And so as you, as you uh, are the essence of of heaven to those who are being redeemed. You're the essence of death uh, to those who are rejecting the gospel. So that shouldn't surprise you. The new covenant can bring some difficulty. You know, being out of death and into life imparted by him uh, to his members, you know, the fact that you're no longer in death and you're in life sets you apart from those who are around you. Uh, the ministry of the word of God, of course, as it, it just runs opposite of most of the cultural preferences. And so if you stick to that, you're gonna have some difficulty. You know, the, the, the dangerous thing would be, beloved, is, is if you're finding no difficulty whatsoever in your life. If you're just kind of sliding through and everybody likes you and everybody's, everything's fine and, and you've got no, no opposition, no rough road, no difficulty, no, no briars, you know, those of you who like to go in the woods, you know, when you first enter the margin of the woods from a field, uh, it's covered with briars usually because that, in that margin of where no growth, you know, if, if, you're, not, if you're going into, uh, into this, uh, this broad place to, to minister, you, you should realize that you're probably going to have some difficulty. The, the danger would be if you're not having any. And of course, the sinfulness of men, you know, the words of people, you know, things that people will say about you behind your back, to your face, hurtful things, the actions of people, things that people will do to, to derail what you're, what you're about and all of that, and, and hard hearts and stiff necks and all of those things bring about this overflowing of suffering. In John chapter 15, verse 20, just one more illustration. Remember, uh, Jesus said, the word that I said to you, a slave's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Again, you know, the difficulty is if you're really not having any opposition at all in your life, I would say perhaps uh, these things like the word of God and, and the ministry of the new covenant perhaps might not be as clear as they need to be. Uh, and uh, sufferings of Christ's sake arising from the same causes as his. See, he said, you're not greater than your master. Uh, they're going to do these things because they don't know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. 
So not only are there tribulations that come as a result of the sinful world and a body that doesn't work right, and so you have some difficulty in the flesh, uh, a chastening for purifying process where the Lord's making you more like his son and, and difficult people and hardship that comes from situations in the world, but there are uh, common sufferings that are as a result of being a disciple. Uh, and they can temporarily leave us perplexed and persecuted and struck down and afflicted. And those are exactly the words that Paul says he's had to endure. But as Paul illustrates these points, he says, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow in us and to us, so also the comfort. So again, this is just a life hack, if you will, but it also it backs us back into our passage again, where Paul can say, well, we don't lose hope. Why, why didn't he lose hope? Well, you know, the second supporting life principle is the comfort that comes from Christ as we share in his sufferings is a benefit that all believers share. See? And it's the same idea with the same words, but instead of sufferings, pathomata, we have paraclesis. We have, we have comfort, see? And the strengthening and encouragement and the help, the verb form, it means to come alongside and support. As a proper noun, it's one of the names of the Holy Spirit. And it overflows, is abundant. That's the idea of overflowing again, abounding, parasuo. So present, active, indicative. So seeing it's also true, this is the verb of reality here, the comfort of Christ is ours in an abounding measure. And I think we could say for Paul that the comforts which he derived from Christ were greater and more sufficient to overbalance the difficulties that we endured. And so then I would propose to you that question. Can you say that as well? Would, would you say that? Can you say Philippians 3.8, more than that I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. See, this is like a, it's a, a dichotomy between the modern church and perhaps where Christianity needs to be with this idea, are you willing to just give up? Would it be okay if you lost everything? See? And would you count it just as rubbish? And would Christ be enough? You know, and I ask, you, I ask myself the same question as I ask you. And I'm not saying that Christ is going to require that from you. I'm just saying, what's the heart attitude you have as you, as, as you look around you? and the things that are in your life, see. And, and I think Paul really didn't care, and he lived that way. He just didn't say it. He didn't say, I don't really care. He just lived that way. He knew how to obey, so he knew how to abound, Philippians 4.11 and following. You know, whatever it was, it didn't really matter. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 35, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it's written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, you know this, principalities, things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul had the assurance of the comfort of Jesus, and so he could say we don't lose hope. See, he's convinced that God was the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, and though Jesus, through Jesus he was continually comforted in abundance for every affliction that was his through his relationship to Jesus. See, So how was he comforted, and what did that look like? See, how, what does strengthening and encouraging and helping look like to a believer? Well, for starters, the success Christ gives to the gospel. And we're going to see that in just a minute in chapter 4, where Paul, his first stop is this new covenant. He's sure of his calling. And you know, as you think about the comfort that you receive from Christ, I think it helps us prioritize our life. I realize we have to work, we have to provide for the needs of our family, we have to do these things so that our family uh, families can live and be supplied and... I, 
We have to live in the world. However, what is the priority as we arrange our life? See, Because if the success of the gospel is your priority, yes, you can do all those things and still uh, seeking his kingdom first. So the success Christ gives to the gospel is an encouragement. That's the overflowing from Christ to the believer, uh, the hope or the reward which was held out to him by the Redeemer as a result of his suffering. So there is reward there that doesn't fade away. You'll be able to glorify God in eternity in a way that you never could by going through difficult times and finding the comfort that comes from Christ. See, They came from Jesus' presence through the indwelling spirit. And so just this that paraclete right alongside, encouraging, building up, strengthening, see, the grace in which Paul stood, where, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. There's great comfort there, isn't there? When you know that you fail and you do it on a regular basis, but you realize that where sin increased, grace increases. And what can you do if you stand in grace? How are you going to get out of that? See, you're standing in grace and it increases as sin increases. There's great comfort there. And I think a lot of people are really beat down because they, they just have a difficult time uh, reconciling their own flesh and its work in their life uh, and, and you, you're just beating yourself up and saying, I'm not worthy. Well, you know what? You never were, see? And neither was I. We stood in grace and where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And, you know, it wasn't because someday in the future, sometime in the future, God looked down the line of your life and thought, okay, at that point, they'll be worthy of salvation, so I'll go ahead and grant it to them now. You know, there's no future merit basis in salvation. It's just his love poured out on you. He drew you and saved you. And now he works in your life to make you more like his son. See? And so there's great encouragement that where sin increases, grace, grace increases all the more. And from the perseverance and proven character and hope that's revealed as you go through difficult times and you realize that you can make it because Christ is sufficient and he becomes your source. You know, remember, keys to, to uh, uh, successful ministry is first of all realizing you're inadequate to any successful ministry and that the Lord is the one who's going to do it through you. We've looked at all that earlier. And from Jesus' love poured out in, uh, in the heart, you know, it's not a drip, it's a pour, see? You know, these are the things that overbalance the difficulties, see? You know, Romans 8, 16 says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit uh, that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is, this is your reality, see? That's who you are in Christ. You are... You are children of God, and if children heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, this is your position. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So obviously it's going to come. All believers, we just saw just a second ago, all believers share in the sufferings of Christ. True believers do that. It's a commonality everyone shares. So if you suffer with him, that's because you're a believer. Then what? You'll also be glorified with him. That's a glory that's going to carry with you into heaven. You'll be able to glorify God in a way you couldn't before because of the difficulties that you endured. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy. Here's Paul. See, the, the comforts are greater than the sufferings. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. Paul had that hope. So I don't lose hope, he says. So we can count on this as really a universal truth for every believer, and, and understanding these truths contribute to lasting ministry and a fulfilled life. Mark this, beloved. We will suffer in the cause of Christ. And, and when we're persecuted or oppressed or wronged or mistreated or troubled on his account, or as uh, Spurgeon said, you're pressed down with the weight of it, and you're not seeing uh, th these things move fast enough, and you're really not seeing some fruit at this time, and it just seems like everything is against you and wh whatever it is, and perhaps you're wronged, or perhaps you're troubled on his account, he will take care that our hearts are filled with consolation. Eli Hoffman, we've talked about him before, 
a hymn writer. He's written a number of wonderful hymns. But he was born May 7th, 1839. Now you're going to see, just again, this thread of the difference between uh, those with Christ and how they respond to difficulty and those without Christ. And again, Eli Hoffman, uh, born in Orangeburg, PA. He was, his father was a minister. Eli followed Christ at a young age. He attended Philadelphia Public Schools, studied science, and pursued the classics at Union Seminary of the Evangelical Association. So he worked for 11 years with the association's publishing house in Cleveland, Ohio. And during that time, he married the love of his life. But before much time had passed, she was taken from him in death. Now we see that common thing, don't we? we? I mean, this is something we've talked about over and over again. So troubles of life come, don't they? I mean, we lose people we want to keep, and uh, we wish we could have them still. And we have uh, health issues that we wish we didn't have to go through, and we, we have hardship in our job, and we have to change jobs, and sometimes we lose our job, and, and things do not go like we want them to go. So what's our response? See, as we get the pressing pressure, is it, this, is it the overflow of patience, endurance, so, so this, this purification process can endure? Or is it the sour of, uh, of grapes that aren't ripe, and it's uh, why me, Lord, see? Let's see what he says. Well, after losing her, he returns to Pennsylvania. He devotes 33 years to pastoring Benton Harbor Presbyterian Church. Elijah's pastime was writing hymns, and many of those came from his pastoral experiences. One day, for example, he was ministering to some of the poor in Lebanon, PA. He meets a woman uh, whose depression seemed beyond cure. She opens up her heart to him, and she shared her pent-up sorrow, wringing her hands. So uh, she's talking to him, and she cries, What shall I do? Oh, what shall I do? And Hoffman knew what she should do for he himself had learned that deeper lesson from the Lord much earlier in life. He said to the woman, quote, you cannot do better than to take all your sorrows to Jesus. You must tell him. And suddenly the lady's face lighted up. Yes, she cried. Yes, that's it. I must tell Jesus. And her words echoed in Hoffman's ears and he mulled them over. And as he returned home, he drew out his pen and he started writing, I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, what's the rest of it? I cannot bear my burdens alone. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, Jesus will help me, Jesus alone. So he lived to be 90, Hoffman did, telling Jesus his burdens and giving the church hymns like, what a wonderful savior, and down at the cross, and are you washed in the blood? and leaning on the everlasting arms. And he learned something in the difficulty of life and ministry, and it was exactly what Paul experienced, and it's exactly what Spurgeon was telling his students. For the believer, the reality is twofold. There's going to be an overflow of suffering from Christ's suffering to you, and from the difficulties of life and hardship that come, as Paul talked about later, as we'll see in 2 Corinthians at the end, where he just had a thorn in the flesh and, and much difficulty. He just said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So he learned that there's an overflow of suffering from Christ's sufferings to you, and just as surely there will be an overflow of comfort from Jesus to you. And those principles, beloved, and, and this is an important application, I think, those are principles help us unlearn the victim mentality. That's so, that's so clear in the church anymore. It's just, we're, we're, all of us are, you know, all of us are victims. We certainly see it in our culture. Everybody's a victim. No, you know, somebody did something to me and I'm a victim and so I have the right to be a victim and have a victim type of mentality that where I'm owed something and this is, you know, this is unfair. This is why I am like I am because all this stuff happened to me, see? And so this helps us unlearn that victim mentality and realize that, you know, our lives are tools that God is preparing through our difficulties to be instruments of comfort and it shouldn't surprise us when we share the sufferings of Christ and we should also not lose hope because we'll also share 
in his we'll share in the, in, the, in the sufferings of Christ and we shouldn't be surprised and we also share in the comforts of Christ. And those principles also help us to learn that we were destined for sufferings for Christ, so we really need to stop looking at it as if it's some unusual thing. And as you think about your life, I'm not, I'm not minimizing difficulty in the past, perhaps childhoods that were very hard, uh, people who did terrible things to you. I, I'm not minimizing any of those things, uh, but the Lord will use those things to shape you and mold you into an instrument of comfort for other people. If you're not a victim, see. If you realize that the Lord's hand is in all of this, even in the midst of a, of a broken, sinful world where wicked, terrible things happen to people, you are not a victim. You are an overcomer. You get to march in the parade behind the leader. And so these are, I, I think, super important principles just to kind of incorporate into the way we think about the things that happen to us perhaps tomorrow or the news that you'll get in two weeks or whatever it may happen, see. So difficulty, hardship in ministry, rejection, insult, and witness, these are the marks of the mission, see. And, and, and with those marks come an overabundance of encouragement and help, encourage, and promises and fruit that overflow from Jesus. So it's, not, it's, so it's no wonder, Paul says, we don't lose heart. Because there's a reality that Paul understands, and it's the same reality that you have and I have. He just understood it to be true, see. We read these passages, but I'm not sure we absorb them. You know, there is a battle, and in the battle there's a purpose that the Lord is bringing about, but what we know is we're going to come away with in the end is that Christ will lead all who are his in victory, see. And so we can say with Paul, then, in verse 1, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 now, we do not lose heart. And, and in verse 8, and we'll incorporate these keys we're going to see here later, but I'll just give you just kind of a preview. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, he says, uh, we are afflicted. Yes, we're afflicted. So Paul's not immune to it, right? He's not somehow set apart and we have to go through it, but he didn't. You know, he's a special kind of guy and there was no affliction there. Yes, we're afflicted. There's no part of our life, Paul says, that hasn't been touched by pressure. That's the word for pressing grapes, okay? That's the same word we saw in Romans chapter 5. So we're pressed. That's the same word. It's translated pressed or afflicted. We're pressed in every way, see, but not crushed. And I love that illustration. Why? Because when you are pressing out grapes, what are you doing? You're crushing them flat to get everything out. But Paul says, we're pressed, but we're not crushed. So he, the short-circuited part there is the Lord's not allowing the grape to be completely crushed. He's just squeezing something out to see what's there. And I love that. We're cr we're, we, are, we are afflicted. We're pressed in every way, but we're not crushed. But by God's mercy, we're not, see? We're not completely flattened. Yes, we're perplexed. And that's an interesting word we're going to see in just a minute. We don't know what the next step is sometimes. That's to be unsure of the step that's next. Have you ever been there? I don't know what to do next. I'm not sure where the Lord wants to take me. That, that's not unusual. Paul says we're perplexed. We don't know what the next step is, but not despairing. And, and we'll look at this in just a minute. But we know that God knows the next step, see? What that next step is, and so we're not without hope, see? We don't despair just because we don't know the very next step. We know the God who knows the next step, see? Persecuted, verse 9, like we saw a moment ago in Paul's example in Derby. I mean, it's pretty difficult, wouldn't you say? He got stoned and he passed out from the injuries and they dragged him out of the city and left him and everybody thought he was dead. So I think, I mean, that's probably a lot higher than any of our, other, of our persecutions. I mean, we've tried to line them up. It's still way up there, okay? Because that didn't happen to any of us, I don't think. 
If it did, my apologies. We're persecuted but not forsaken, so God hasn't abandoned us just because it's difficult times come to us and they're hard. We haven't been abandoned by God. Struck down, this is literally to be thrown to the ground. Of course, that happened physically to Paul, but I think it, here it has to do with a lower position, a humbling, if you will, an experience is likely what he's speaking of, but not destroyed. So the idea is not ruined. We're not rendered useless just because God has humbled us and placed us to a different position. And so we're going to look at those in a while, but according to 2 Corinthians 6, 8 through 10, Paul endured a lot of that kind of thing, see? He had evil reports told about him. He, he was called a deceiver. He was referred to as an unknown. Nobody really knew him, not a big deal. You know, uh, at, at the point of dying, at the hands of people, he said, and uh, punished for no reason. He's sorrowful, poor, having nothing. Difficult, hard existence. And yet he's able to rise above the physical difficulty and he's able to say, I don't lose heart because he had those anchor points, those GPS waypoints we talked about earlier, much like Spurgeon was encouraging his students, right? Keys to lasting ministry, a fulfilled life. And we saw some of those points, and here some of those are. Just a review from what we looked at before. He says, therefore, since we have this ministry, so he was certain about the validity of his calling. And that's a marvelous thing. We just said it just a minute ago. You know, regardless of what you're going through and, and the supply for the needs of your family, seeking first the kingdom of God is not, is not one of the things that we can just choose or not to do or to do. We have this ministry, we have this calling, and that's his number one encouragement, his number one anchor point. What's our main reason to be on earth? And that is to, to fulfill the Great Commission, right? And so, so speaking of this new covenant ministry, the ministry of the gospel, the Great Commission, which brings life, and it's a ministry of the Holy Spirit, and it's a ministry of imputed righteousness. We saw all this before. A sure hope of wonderful, secure eternity. It brings liberty. It brings transformation to uh, yeah, the believer into Christ's image. Why would I be faithful to the end, Paul says? Why would I persevere to the end? Why will I go through all the obstacles and difficulties and hardships? And Because we have this ministry. And whatever the price might be to fulfill it, the price is not enough to buy him out of it. Okay? Not even close. And so... What keeps Paul and you and me on course is that there's this eternal impact connected to the ministry. And you don't have that on your own, see? It doesn't matter how important your job is or how much money you make or, or you know, uh, what kind of level of, of uh, authority that you've reached. You know, those things are all going to crumble to dust and this will remain, see? I mean, it's important. To, I mean, it's, it's important to supply for the needs of your family. If the Lord's advanced you, you know, be advanced. If you, if you, wherever you are, be content. You know, it's, there's that balance of, you know, doing better and doing, uh, you know, and being able to accomplish more and then also being content wherever the Lord puts you. But the, the bottom line is this, you know, you have this ministry and that's the validity of your calling and that gives you hope. It's beyond all the job losses and difficult times and, and hardships and, and, and uh, life lessons and, and health issues and whatever. You have this ministry, you have this calling. It exceeds those other things and becomes the reason why you exist, see? And then it, he brings everything into a right evaluation in this next, in this next GPS mark. He says, uh, therefore, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, he says, we don't lose hope. And number two, first one was you're certain about the validity of your calling. Secondly, you have everything in the right perspective. You've received mercy. So everything we are and everything we have and everything we can do is a result of God's mercy. And so again, as you, as you play that out in the midst of, of what you're going through, Paul could go through the tough times because he knew he didn't deserve anything but judgment. And, you know, we, we've got this over, overbounding imagination that we deserve a whole bunch of stuff, don't we? 
We, 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 we project that on our life and we project it on people, maybe on our spouse or whatever. I deserve this. See, but Paul understood that he didn't deserve anything but judgment. So whatever the course may have been then, he could run it. And whatever the, your course is, you can run it, can't you? Because whatever the fight may be, you can take it. And you can keep the faith because it's all mercy. The whole thing. Anything good in your life is mercy. And this despair and futility and pointlessness and people who are unfulfilled, we see it all around us. See, it should never be that way for the redeemed. You know, T. DeWitt Talmage, he's, you may have heard that name. He's a, a 19th century preacher. He's noted for saying, quote, I love this, quote, um, there may be long seasons of darkness in ministry. The chariot wheels of God's gospel may seem to drag heavily, but here's the promise, and yonder is the throne. And when the omniscience has lost its eyesight, and the omnipotence falls back impotent, and Jehovah is driven from his throne, then the church of Jesus Christ can afford to be despondent, but never until then, end quote. That's pretty cool, isn't it? The chariot... I love this. The chariot wheels of God's gospel may seem to drag heavily. Now, if you're in full-time ministry, you, are, you understand that very clearly, don't you? And if you're in ministry at all and you're, in, you're trying to impact the lives of individuals who are unredeemed uh, or those who are redeemed and you're trying to, to bring them along into discipleship, you may understand this. It may seem to drag very slowly. And that's very much in the vein of the apostles' comments. He says, you know, we get struck down, we get afflicted, we get, as we mentioned a moment ago, perplexed. That word, I told you I was going to talk about that. That's present, middle, participle of the Greek, apareo. Literally means without a path. Unsure which way to go. That's the nature of ministry sometimes. Lasting ministry and fulfilled life are not the absence of trouble. It's not the absence of, of never knowing what to do next. See, Paul said that he's perplexed, but he's not despairing. Despairing is the renouncing of hope. That's Paul says, I may not know what path to take in some certain circumstance, but that doesn't mean there isn't one. And it certainly is not a reason to make me give up. Why? Well, just those first two things, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, you know your main job, what your main job is. And as we receive mercy, that's the accurate evaluation of all you are. And Paul can immediately say then, because of those two, I don't lose hope. And then he says in verse 2, but we have renounced things hidden. We've renounced the things hidden because of shame. And we saw our third key to lasting ministry and a fulfilled life is people who come to the end of their ministry and they can say things that Paul said. Just make sure you win the spiritual battle with temptation and sin on the inside over the long haul. You catch that? First one is, what's your main job? A great commission is your main job. The new covenant is your main job. And it supersedes all the other jobs, although you have to do them. Your life is made up, though, of further in the kingdom. And so that's your hope. Secondly, everything's mercy. So you can run whatever path it is, because whatever it is, and every goodness that you've had in your life, and all the sweetnesses about your life is all mercy anyway, right? And then this third one, you know, if you want to run this race, and you want to get to the end, and you want to have a fulfilled life, and you want to have a lasting ministry, you're going to have to win this spiritual battle with temptation and sin on the inside over the long haul. And we've had to deal with that here, haven't we? Not too much in the past, people who have not won that battle and then have betrayed themselves. That's not a nice thing, see. There's no satisfaction at that end. Only a back up, back into repentance and heading the right way again, see. So Paul knew about this battle, you know. He's not talking about something he doesn't know anything about. He's a former Pharisee, so he was well-trained and highly skilled hypocrite. 
a master of hiding everything that he really was and looking really spiritual on the outside. And many of us can do the same thing, can't we? Very well. Hiding everything that we don't want anybody to see and looking really great on the outside. And Matthew 23, verse 27, Jesus refers to the Pharisees and he says this, You are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And so you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So this described Paul. So Paul's not talking about something he doesn't understand. Paul was really good at looking good on the outside and masking everything that he was on the inside, and, but now he understands, and so he says this. You know what? First of all, you've got to remember what your real job is if you don't want to lose hope. Secondly, if you don't want to lose hope, you remember that everything about, that's good about your life is mercy, so whatever the course is, you can run it. And thirdly, if you, want to, if you want to get to the end of this life and have lasting ministry and you want to have a fulfilled life, you're going to have to win this battle inside. So the opposite of being an accomplished fraud, like Paul was, is renouncing the things that are hidden. Apipomane, to reject, that's that verb, to put them aside. Every time they come up, you renounce them. That's a life pattern. More come up, we reject them. We put them away. We do it every time. We're putting away the things hidden. That's the crypta. Things that nobody could see and nobody understands unless you reveal them and you would rather not see. These are sinful things that are hidden, not knowable, unless you reveal them and you don't want to, so we renounce them and we renounce hidden sins, things that he calls hidden things because of shame, meaning they're too shameful to speak of them, see? That describes everybody in this room. Don't pretend that it doesn't. And this is the process that everybody in this room has to be through, go through on a regular basis, renouncing, digging them up, putting them away, rejecting them, rejecting them, taking captive those thoughts, anything that rises up against the knowledge of Christ. This is something you can do. Paul says, take captive your thought, right? He says, renounce the things that are hidden. You can do this. I can do this. See, you have the Holy Spirit's power inside you. Now you have power over the flesh, and you can say no, see? And that mind that's working, that's that flesh, that human part of you, that brain that it's, it's, uh, can do a whole bunch of stuff inside, but nobody can see it. Paul says, reject all of that. You want to reach the end of a fulfilled life? You want to come to the end of lasting ministry that's been uh, used for Christ's purposes? Then you're going to have to put away all these things, see? If you can have lasting ministry, you don't want to wreck your life. It just seems like, you know, time and truth go hand in hand, beloved. You know, given enough time, the truth comes out. You catch that? Time and truth go hand in hand. Given enough time, the truth of you is going to come out. If you're not doing this, it's not going to be very long. It'll be down in your life a little bit, but you're only going to contain it so long, okay? You've given sin a beachhead. It continues to be in there. You're not rejecting it. You're not turning away from it. You're not putting it away. Eventually, over time, the truth comes out, see? And what do you want to come out? You, the glory of Christ, see? Not that you're sufficient in yourself, not that you're without sin, not that you don't have to struggle with this. You know, Paul covered it up and then realized, now that's not working, right? Sin came to life in him and he died, Romans 7, Right? He realized he was coveting all over the place, although on the outside he did everything perfectly and it looked like this whitewashed, beautiful sepulcher, but inside full of dead men's bones. Paul says, that's not how you got to live. You got to live like rejecting these things and putting them away on a regular basis, realizing everything's mercy and I have a main job to do. And in those respects, if those three and there's many more, I don't lose hope. See. So reject the things hidden over the long haul. Now the next key to lasting ministry fulfilled life is found in the middle of verse two. You can look there. He says this, verse 2, not walking in craftiness. I realize I've put that slide up six times. Sorry about that. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. That, that word craftiness is a noun, panorgia. That's another way Paul describes how not to do ministry. 
another word for cleverness or trickery. It's where we get our word pantomime. You're doing something that you, you're not really doing. I kind of say you're doing something and kind of uh, hiding when you're, your real desire. Luke 20, verse 23 expresses it as the word trickery, not walking and crafting this. But here he says, same word, panergia. He says, but he detected their panergia, their trickery, and said to them, um, and here the tr- scribes and chief priests are trying to catch Jesus in some statement so they could accuse him. You remember, they come to him and they ask him, should you pay taxes to Caesar or not? Do you remember when he asked, they asked Jesus that, trying to catch him? And, and it says he detected their panergia. He detected their craftiness or their trickery. And Jesus understood what they were up to. They were trying to manipulate him. That's the whole idea. He told them to, you know, bring him a coin, remember, and whose face is on it, and you know, render to Caesar those things that are Caesar's, you know. Just a side note, if you don't think you should be paying taxes, there's a problem right there for you, okay, among so many other ones. But here it appears the word is connected to the word adulterating, so it has to do with an approach to ministry. So it'd be trying to manipulate people into doing what you want them to do. And then this next part, it says, not walking in craftiness, See, this is a very important issue because Paul talks about it a lot. So not walking in panergia, not walking in trickery, or mark this, adulterating, that's the verb, the luntes, the word of God, adulterating. This is someone who tries to take the word and make it say what he wants it to say. It was used to refer to a decoy or a snare or a hook. So that's the guy who uses a hook or a clever story an emotional plea, making the word appear to say something it doesn't say. It's all about the teaching of the word. It's all about how you go about ministry with the word of God, okay? So he says, you know, don't walk in trickery or craftiness, you know, trying to trick somebody into doing something. Don't adulterate the word of God. Don't try to manipulate people into doing something with craftiness. Not, you know, and a while ago we saw another word that describes what ministry is not supposed to look like, 2 Corinthians 2.17. He says, um, for we're not like many peddling the word of God, peddling, it's from, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Many, of course, there is the adjective plistos. It, the article is there in the, in the original, so it's the many, so it's a superlative. So it's saying there's lots of people who are doing this, they're doing ministry like this, they're peddling the word of God. Uh, peddling, capel uo, that's, um, so this is a big problem, this, uh, a large number of people. In the New Testament, it describes an innkeeper or petty retailer, a huckster. And they would do it to get gain, dealing in anything, willing to sell anything in any way. And these are widespread problems. And even in evangelical circles, we see this over and over again. And people, because of the craftiness brought through the teaching of the word, because of the adulterating the Word of God, so using a clever story, emotional plea, uh, a catchy video, something that pulls on your heart. Instead of using the Word of God, you're trying to manipulate something um, and peddling the Word of God, trying to sell it in some way as a huckster. People have lost the understanding of what biblical preaching really is supposed to be. It's got to be entertainment in some way. It's got to have something that's going to pull my heartstrings. It's got to have something to grab my attention. See, somehow we've got to dress it up in, in some way so that it's more appealing to people. See, this is, this is the nature of biblical preaching, and it's so prevalent that people have forgotten what biblical preaching really is, and so when you go verse by verse through the Word, people say, oh, that's so, just so dry. Because so much of that is going on, all those, those types of things. I mean, I, I think we could easily point out Steve Furtick and Elevation Church, based in Matthews, 
North Carolina, 17 locations of this church. One of them is in Roanoke, Virginia, so not very far away. I don't know if you remember, just not too long ago, <clears throat> uh, he made the news because he said he was going to pray with the church, a sun stands still kind of prayer from Joshua 10, and ask God for thousands of people to come forward in baptism. Anybody remember this, this mess up? Interesting. So he's going to pray a sun stands still prayer and just say, okay, Lord, in our big service, we're going to just pray for thousands of people to spontaneously stand up and be baptized. But what he had done is, he had seated dozens of people in the congregation, so when he called for the baptism, they all were supposed to stand up and go forward to be baptized. Although they weren't going to be baptized, they were seated to start the movement. Now, I don't have to connect that to what we just said for you to see, that that pretty much takes in three of the four things we just got through saying that Paul says you're not supposed to do. Is it a sun stand still moment and people spontaneously standing up to get baptized when you seated dozens and dozens of people in the congregation to stand up and come forward when you say come forward for baptism? No, what are you doing? You're manipulating people and you're not really trusting the Holy Spirit to move in the hearts of people, are you? You're just, you're helping people, you're making people stand up that you've seated out there so that other people will stand up and come forward. So you're using a hook, you're peddling it, it's adulterated. See, this is, this is not that unusual, see. It's not that baptism isn't a good thing, it's just this isn't how the ministry is done according to the passage, see. So we understand what we're to avoid, and we can condense these statements really in key number four. Paul says if you want lasting ministry, if you, you know, as we've looked at this, what lasting ministry looks like if you want to have uh, a fulfilled life, you got to understand what your number one job is. you got to understand that, you know, everything's mercy, you're going to need to understand that you've got to be in this, doing this battle in the mind and in the heart all the time and rejecting these things. And then this third, this fourth thing, you know, you're never going to use the Word of God in such a way as to sell it or to accomplish some goal in ministry by manipulating people. The Word of God is powerful and quick and sharper than a two-edged sword, and it can do the work. You just got to release it, okay? And, and a faithful minister is someone, as we said over and over again, I've reminded you, it takes what the, the Lord has prepared in the kitchen and serves it at the table and tries not to mess it up in between. See? And just to confirm key four, let's look at that next portion of verse two. But we have renounced, he says, the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. Now mark this, this is what biblical teaching ministry is supposed to look like, not peddling, not manipulation, not adulteration. What is it then? But by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man conscience in the sight of God. So here's the, here's the flip side. Here's what it's supposed to look like, see? Presentation of the truth. Phanerosis. This is a really cool word. It, it's connected closely with the word you've heard of before, apocalypsis. Remember apocalypsis? That's um, the revealing. In fact, sometimes the words are translated into English interchangeably. You may see them in some English translations interchangeably, but they're really not that interchangeable. They can be in some certain situations, but most of the time, no. Apocalypsis has the idea of drawing back a curtain and letting everybody see what's hidden behind it. It's a disclosure. In fact, that's actually the Greek name for the book of Revelation. That is the book. That is the word Revelation, apocalypsis. The book of Revelation has that name. The full name is the Revelation of Jesus Christ. That's when we say we're going to turn to the book of Revelation, that true name of that book is the revelation, the apocalypsis, the revealing, the disclosure of things about Jesus' reign that were previously unknown. 
the curtain is pulled back, and here it is. And so as we, as we study that book, we realize there are things here that aren't anywhere else in the Bible, and we learn things about Jesus' reign and his future reign that we wouldn't have known unless it was revealed, okay? But that's not the word Paul uses here. Phanerosis has to do with actively presenting the truth. And you can see how they're closely related. But this word has to do with how to do ministry. And that makes sense because that's what Paul is being carried along by the Holy Spirit to reveal to the church. How to do, how to have lasting ministry and how to have a fulfilled life. And this is what biblical ministry is supposed to look like. Here it is. It's the open, clear exposition of truth. See? And that truth is the scriptures. Unadulterated, unmanipulated, unpeddled. No trickery involved in it. See? And the scriptures are where we find sound doctrine. And sound doctrine, and by that, notice he says, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So he's, this is not unfamiliar language to us from Paul in the letter. He is showing the church his heart. So in other words, if you think about it, the way I conducted my ministry, he says, among you was by actively presenting the truth. That's what Paul says to the church. I was with you for 18 months. I actively presented the truth to you. And your conscience knows that this is true, see? And in everything we've done, our conscience, Paul says, agreed with us, and it's fully informed by the Word of God. And so when you do ministry this way then, beloved, it allows the ministry you do to stand up to the scrutiny of our most important audience. That's that right there at the end. I, commending ourselves to every man's conscience, look at the last part, in the sight of God, see? Paul calls on that scrutiny right now. He says, listen, my conscience does not convict me before you. So I actively presented I exposited the truth clearly before you regularly. I just opened the Bible up and taught you exactly what it said. I didn't try to hook you. I didn't try to do something to trick you. I didn't try to, I didn't adulterate it. Okay, I didn't peddle it. See? And your conscience knows this is true. And Paul calls on scrutiny from God right now. I'm doing this. I did this in the sight of God. See? Manifesting the truth by rightly dividing the word allows you to say that. And, and so as you do your ministry, just think, that's where the power is, beloved, whatever it is. If you're doing little kids ministry, you know, teen ministry, preteen ministry, adult ministry, Bible study, whatever it is, the power is found in the word of God, not adulterated. Don't think you have to have a whole bunch of these things going on so that you get people drawn in. Okay, the power is in the word of God and God's people need it, see? And so they hunger after it. The Holy Spirit's there. They will hunger after the word of God. As a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for it see, is in a dry land. Paul says, listen, your conscience, he says to the church, your conscience isn't saying, yeah, I know you open the word of God, but remember when Paul was trying to manipulate the word so we would do some certain thing that we would pay him or welcome him into our home or be baptized or whatever. No, Paul says, no, you, you can't say any of that because I didn't do any of that. I didn't try to trick you. I just told you what the word of God said. His conscience is clear and they can bear no witness in that way. So Paul says, what I said then, I still say now, and in the same way. Can you, can you say that? See? And again, you know, we just bring ourselves in line with this. Can you do this kind of thing? Sure. You know, what's, what's the passage I give you all the time? You know, first, or Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another. Right? You have the word of God. It's, you, you're holding it right now. What are you to do with it? You're supposed to let it dwell richly within you. you. Open it up, you read it. What does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? 
So what's Paul actively saying? See, Paul says, we speak the unadulterated, unmanipulated, unpeddled word of God, and we do it right in front of God, and your conscience bears that witness. And we shouldn't be ashamed to acknowledge that if we're rightly dividing the word of truth. We can say, you know, God's my witness. I'm just opening the word to you, and this, this is, you're responsible for what you hear, see? And I'm not trying to trick you into making some decision. Listen, the Holy Spirit calls you to do it. Do it. So we're not afraid to call God as a witness. So key number five, if you're copying these down, key number five, if you want to have a lasting ministry, a fulfilled life, then just relent, beloved, especially if you're heading into, if you're heading into vocational ministry, but whatever ministry it is you're doing, relentlessly, faithfully present scriptural truth clearly and plainly over the long haul. Lasting ministry, fulfilled life. You're going to get to your into your life, and you're not going to, and you're going to look back and you're going to say, "I've got no regrets." See, and you may be like, you know, uh, some of the illustrations we saw. The wheels may be grinding slowly. You may be pressed into the soil from time to time, from the weight of souls, and you just don't seem to be doing anything that you think is any good. And people may hate you, and people may say terrible things about you, like they did Paul. See, and they may wish you were dead, like they wished Paul was dead, and they tried to make sure Paul was dead. They may wish you weren't there like they wished Paul wasn't there, see? They may make you wish you didn't have to go back there like Apollos. Remember after he left, Paul says, can you go back to the Corinthian church? He's like, eh, I don't think so. Not right now. Not ever. You know, people may betray you. They may defect from you. But no matter what the hardships and no matter what the trials and no matter what the difficulties and no matter what the discouragements, no matter what the assaults were, you know, as we saw earlier, whatever the difficulties that you have in Christ, you're also comforted with the comfort that's from Christ. Right? That's, you know that that's the truth. See, no matter how may, you may be unjustly uh, attacked, you know, and criticized, you know, Paul never watered down the scripture. He never twisted it to gain some personal end. He just relentlessly, faithfully presented scriptural truth clearly and plainly over the long haul, see. And as a consequence, faithfulness to the truth over the long haul commended themselves to the conscience of the people, even to his enemies, see. He's going to get to the end of his life, and he looks back, he's got no regrets, and his conscience is clear. He just presented the word of God. He knew what his number one job was, right? And he knew that everything was mercy, so it really didn't matter if people, people abused me or whatever. Whatever good I have in my life, that's just mercy anyway, and I just deserve judgment, right? It's not like we're walking around, oh, I just deserve judgment, I just deserve... I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a mind attitude that we're not entitled, okay? And then winning that battle in, inside all the time, right? Because that's going to interrupt all that other stuff, you know, if you're not winning that battle inside. Never using the Word of God in such a way that to sell it or accomplish some goal in ministry or jump ahead somehow by doing some certain thing. And number five, you know, relentlessly, faithfully present scriptural truth clearly and plainly over the long haul. And you'll commend yourself to the conscience of the people and even your enemies. Lasting ministry is biblical ministry that brings about an integrity in that ministry and you stick with it, see? And you're not bouncing around, you know, you're going to give the whole counsel, you're just going to work through it verse by verse, and whatever comes up, that comes up, and that's next. And everybody knows it, and as uncomfortable it may be for you or for them, just do it, right? Because it's the whole counsel, and, and God's people were made for God's word, and the Holy Spirit hungers for it in your own heart, see? And, and that scriptural presentation over and over and over again bears lasting fruit. So Paul says to the church, lasting ministry, fulfilled life for the believer, knowing the validity of your calling. You know why you're here. 
that supersedes everything else. Acknowledging everything you do as a result of God's mercy, learning to win the battle with temptation and sin inside over the long haul. Never use the Word of God, never manipulate it, never uh, mess it up, sell it to somebody to accomplish some goal, and being relentless to faithfully present the scriptural truth clearly and plainly over the long haul. These are just our first five, and there are many more. And I pray that that will be a blessing to your own heart. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time together in the Word. You are so good to us to give us your Word, and so plainly that we may rejoice in it. We may see, as Paul reveals his own heart, length of ministry, longevity in ministry, faithful ministry, uh, a fulfilled life. We understand that's you know, if we follow what you laid down for us to do as part of our ministry, we also know that at the end of our life, we know it will be fulfilled. We're not going to look back and say, man, what a waste that was. We'll not be disappointed by following in obedience to the things that you say. We're grateful too, Father, for this season. It's been so sweet a number of times this week in my own heart. It's just been a great time of worship as I think about uh, the advent of your son and the beginning of the end where you have sent in the fullness of time your son, uh, your image in flesh to live a perfect life, to be murdered, and to be raised up and by his blood paid for our sins. Thank you for that ministry. Thank you for the opportunity to rejoice in knowing that the baby in the manger is the one we have to bow to. That he came to be killed, to be sacrificed for the sins of men, of which we are all chief. And Father, I pray that you, as we come into this last couple of weeks, as we move towards Christmas, what a joy it'll be. Lord, take us safely wherever we're going to go. Thank you for the opportunity to have a long, young church that travels all over. Lord, I pray that we'll be ministers of your gospel and the essence of life to those we contact, that you might minister grace as we pray in our family many times as we travel, you might bring grace to the people we come to, to see. Help us to be that. And whatever it is we're dealing with, Lord, the broken hearts, the, the hardship, the worry, the sorrow, all these things, as Alex prayed earlier, Lord, we have this hope. We have this wonderful hope that this is not it. In fact, this is the worst of it. The best is still to come. And as we glorify you in those difficult times, we are able to then, in the future, glorify you forever by the way that we deal with these things. So, Lord, bring us the grace to understand uh, how to go through it, maybe not understand why, but understand how we might honor your name and glorify your son, remembering our first job. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.